Great. All right. Hi, everybody. Welcome to a very special interview with Generation Elect. I'm Henry Reichman, and I'm joined today by Emma Camp, a senior at the University of Virginia. She made national headlines last month and controlled the discourse around a lot of American discussion on free speech and college campus culture when she wrote a fascinating, provocative, and polarizing article in the New York Times. Titled, I came to college eager to debate, I found self-censorship instead. It details her time at UVA and what she views as a culture of strict ideological conformity and backlash against debating and sharing opinions. The article is huge. It completely blew up on Twitter with so many of the great intellectuals in the country talking about it, and it seems there have been thousands of articles written about the article. Here with me is Emma Camp, who amazingly I've secured for a conversation. How are you, Emma? Doing well, how are you? I'm doing really great. I'm so glad we were able to do this. It's a break for me from school, and tomorrow I'm embarking on big college visits around uh, the D.C. area. So I was thinking, I was like, I should Wait, do this. are you in high school? Oh, yeah, I'm a junior in high school. Yeah. Okay, I thought you were I thought you were in college. Wow, you're a, you're a high school junior. I am a high school junior, yeah. That's incredible. So okay, good luck. <laughs> it's that crazy time, but I was thinking, I was like, I should do this interview in person if I'm going to the D.C. metro area, but then I researched and I found out that UVA is like two hours away so I didn't yeah I was know. actually in DC yesterday but oh, wow. I, was, I was occupied I was just moving into my apartment <laughs> for next year that's awesome though but um was the college visit like process for you was it um was it tough or like how did you settle on UVA um I I actually didn't visit that many colleges um I just didn't have the time to be able to like delegate. I'm from Alabama, so like oh, there cool. are there there of the places I were I was applying to, there weren't that many that were close by. Um but UVA just was the one that made the most sense at the end. And I'm I'm glad that I I'm very glad I ended up here. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So I'm excited to put that on my list hopefully. So yeah, um UVA sounds like a great college. Uh you do you are critical of some of the culture inside UVA. Um, you've mentioned a lot of uh, moments inside your time at UVA where you felt like you've, in class discussions you've had to self-censor, moments in which you feel like uh, it's hard to match with the orthodoxy of political opinion inside the college and its classes. So what did you want to accomplish through the article and what was the process of submitting this to the New York Times and becoming, you know, the superstar overnight? I mean, what I really wanted to accomplish was writing about what I think is kind of an under talked about problem in the, I guess for lack of a better term, like campus culture war discourse. Um, because I think a lot of attention is of course, very rightly put on colleges who attempt to through um, policy, reduce the ability of their students to exercise their first amendment rights, whether it's through restrictive speech codes or punishing student groups with exorbitant fees if they invite controversial speakers or, you know, even, uh, and so um, these kind of policy-based uh, decisions made by school administrators, I think there's a lot of, um, th there's often a lot of buzz around these. I, I think that's really important to talk about this kind of distinct kind of policy side. But at the same time, um, if you don't have a culture of free speech, students aren't going to use the rights that they have, right? UVA is a green light school on fire. Um, it has very good free speech policies, I think. But at the same time, because the student body doesn't really value free speech, not in like the legal sense, but in the in the kind of cultural sense, I would think of it more oftentimes I use the word free expression to prevent this confusion. 
Um, what ends up happening is that despite being on a campus where the administration is very supportive of free expression, our policies support students' First Amendment rights, many students are kind of reasonably afraid to say things that kind of go outside of the acceptable, very narrow Overton window because of just the sheer scope of the social consequences for doing so. And so I hope to make a bit of an appeal, both that like this is a problem that we should look at and go like, what is this doing to the educational attainment of college students, right? Like how can you learn if you're afraid of considering the wrong opinion because you just might be convinced by it, right? And then you would be guilty of wrong thing. Like we, we should pay attention to this problem, but also make making an appeal that like self-censorship is something that we ought to be concerned with as well. Um, and so the second part of that question, how this came about is I actually had a, um, a New York Times uh, editorial assistant reached out to me. Um, she read some stuff that I wrote for the college newspaper at UVA and liked it and sent me an email suggesting that I pitch for the Times. And so I did, and they accepted a draft of the pitch. And then what followed was five months of draft after draft after draft, editing, 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 before it finally came out in March. So I actually sent, I, I wrote my first draft of the article in October. That's really crazy. I remember I tried to pitch for the Times last year about um, academic stress and a pandemic in high school, because uh, I was just like so fed up with the amount of like tests online. But uh, that sounds like a really cool process. Um, so writing for the Times is awesome. But um, so yeah, I mean, like, once the Times really has a huge scope, and once you got the article published and once um once it went out and twitter you know really had fun with it um a lot of a lot of new york times journalists even you know uh criticizing their own paper a lot of really smart and really uh interesting people like from across the dialogue standpoint on both sides reacting to your thing what was it like to be like the center of attention like that was it was it a lot was it demoralizing or did you enjoy having that kind of discourse around your ideas it was definitely strange. Um, I didn't expect the piece to get that much attention. Like I, I did expect there would be some pushback. Like I understand it's a controversial issue. Um, the Times warned me a little bit that there might be some pushback. So I, I was prepared for people to call me names on the internet. I don't think I, I expected the sheer volume of the response because it, it felt kind of um, like, it, it feels like a self-centered thought to think that you, yes, you can break the internet. So I kind of actively tried to prevent myself from in the months long lead up to this being published from thinking that that might happen. And also, frankly, I was, I had convinced myself that they were going to kill it at every step of the way. I did not get excited about the article being published until the night before, because I had convinced myself in an effort to manage my expectations they're going to kill it. Some editor's going to see it. They're not going to like it. It's not going to get published. So like, I just hadn't prepared myself emotionally for it. Um, and I think like, I have a very, I have very supportive friends um, and family. So it, it didn't feel like people that I cared about or whose opinion of me really mattered were kind of publicly dragging me, I suppose. Like it, it I felt supported yeah. by my family and friends. Um, but it was, it was mostly strange. I felt very, I felt too known, if that makes sense. I felt way too much of the, I felt, a, I, it made me realize that human beings really aren't meant to be famous, if that makes sense. Not to say that I'm famous, but that like, 
you're really only meant to have your existence known about by like a handful of people in your hunter-gatherer village, right? (laughs) The idea that there were like however many thousands of people tweeting about me is cognitively very strange. Right. I mean, you got your Andy Warhol 15 minutes in there, right? And and some. (laughs) Yeah, a bit more than 15 minutes, 20, 25. Um, But so, I mean, like it is a topic that the New York Times has been writing about that not just New York Times, you know, lots of news sources have really been interested in promoting and discussing. Um, why do you think that, you know, the free speech cancel culture issue is so polarizing when, you know, people become vicious and just so mad at each other when they discuss it, uh, unlike a lot of other issues, which are surprisingly, in my view, like discussed a bit more civilly, but we love writing and speaking about it. Do you think it's um, almost a low art because we're not actually discussing policy, we're just discussing how people talk, you know? I think that's part of it. I think also part of it is that doing the thing that is cancel culture is very politically valuable, right? There's a lot of social capital to be gained by publicly dunking on someone, right? By saying, I am part of the good group because I found someone who is part of the bad group and I am participating in, you know, stoning them in the public square or whatever. And so I think people want to protect their ability to do that um, and and also protect the kind of moral goodness of doing that by saying this isn't cancel culture, right? This isn't. And and for, to, to be clear, I don't think I was canceled. I think you're canceled by your in-group. Um, I don't think the people who were calling me a white nationalist for having a photo taken in front of the rotunda, which every UVA student does. Like, I, I don't think those are the kind of people that I was like, that I, you know, buddied up with. So so I, I don't feel like I was canceled in, in like the technical, whatever type of definition exists of the term. But I think, you know, people deny that it exists because it's useful to use. Um, and if you keep people from naming it and naming it as bad, you could continue using it. And I think this is somewhat true on the left and the right, although I think the way cancel culture exists on the right, it's less of a cancel culture doesn't exist writ large. It's that cancel culture only exists when when people on the left do it. And so, you know, when when a right-wing mob is trying to do what they're doing to Liz Cheney, for example, you know, get her off her committee appointments, try to get her seat taken from her, whatever, um, you know, that is clearly a kind of cancel culture, but no, 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 we're not doing that. That's just what the left does. So I, I think it's mainly that the debate is so vicious because it's so useful as a political strategy. It is useful, but it's also useful on all sides of it, isn't it? I feel like there are a lot of people in the media discourse who we never heard of before they were, quote, canceled. Um, I'm just thinking, you know, like Brett Weinstein, someone who I do not like, but someone who, you know, nobody had heard of like this like random biology professor in Washington. And then all of a sudden he was let go of his job. He was canceled. And now suddenly because of his censorship, say, he's amassed millions of followers on on like a broad platform. So in cases like that, I, I do give credence, I feel like, to people who are just like, I don't see where the canceling is taking place because they're gaining access to a broader media infrastructure, right? I mean, I think the case of Brett Weinstein is interesting. I mean, for one, I I think he has recently, like, gone off the deep end a little bit. But that aside, um, I think, you know, he lost his job. His students were were hunting him, right? Like, if I recall, like, university police said they couldn't protect him. Like, I think in a case as extreme as Brett Weinstein's, it's sort of understand how that is somewhat radicalizing because 
evergreen is like the craziest i i hope things ever get right yeah. that was bonkers um but even you know t- taking the extremity of the situation aside like he lo- like what else is he gonna do he lost his job he'll never get hired as an academic again sure. you know it's sort of like the necessity of being thrust like the people who are canceled upward i suppose uh to a certain extent it's a, a beat that they're forced into and then i think a more important note is that that's only a very small number of the people who get canceled, right? Like most of the people who get canceled, um, you know, they make a bad tweet and then they get fired, right? And then you just never hear from them again, right? Like the the people who who get most of the people who get canceled don't make careers off of it, right? They end up just losing their jobs and having their lives destroyed. Um, so, so I think those are are just very small numbers of people, and they're really, I suppose, like journalists or academics who have been canceled, um, or teachers, right? I mean, right teachers, now you see right. in the whole critical race theory moral panic, we see a lot of teachers losing their jobs for you know giving an assignment a reading about slavery, right? Does that fit in your kind of dichotomy? Because I feel like that's right I mean, now the most pressing I'm thing. I'm not right? so sure. I, I'm not aware, and maybe I'm wrong, I'm not aware of any instances of a teacher getting fired for giving a reading about slavery. I was just making that up in my head. But, like, there are, there are teachers who, I know a teacher who, a high school teacher, yes, who course. assigned, like, like a... The bills are terrible. Yeah, right? I mean, in my high school, um, a teacher was uh, put on academic leave for uh, assigning a, the Netflix movie The 13th, about the 13th Amendment and mass right. incarceration. I think that's right? insane. Yeah. I, I think anti-CRT bills are really, really bad ideas. Um... And I think definitely, like, I, I think the term cancel culture is so, like, poorly understood and so, like, misused that I don't really think it's fair. Like, I think calling those teachers canceled does a disservice to, like, what happened to them. Okay. It's like, no, they were censored, right? Or they were punished for ideological wrong thing of a lot of, I say, like, a teacher assigning the documentary 13th um, in a very small way. Right. I went to a public high school and I watched 13 for a class. Yeah, that's great. I don't feel like it was uh, critical race theory. And and even when there are the kind of extreme examples of something like this, like I think I saw this morning, I mean, Chris Rufo is a clown, but someone oh, I yes. follow, like his tweet, I think it was of the, it might be just Seattle. It was either just Seattle or Washington State's like proposed ethnic studies curriculum for math. And it involved like yeah. saying how like on West like mathematical knowledge of color was appropriated by the West. And like I have no idea what you're talking about. You're talking about like Arabic numerals? Like what yeah. like the stuff that seems kind of crazy. Like I, I feel like there are ways I, there are pretty obvious ways to me of handling the isolated instances of what I view as actual, like yes, this does not belong in public education. Um which is that they don't need the intervention of the state necessarily, right? Like taking an extreme example that I'm making up, like if a kindergarten teacher showed a room of five-year-olds like a really violent R-rated horror movie, they would get fired, right? Right, But there are no laws in the books that say like, kindergarten teachers shall not show R-rated movies to kindergartners. We just all know that if a teacher does that, that will be ruled unacceptable and they will be released from their job. So I feel like that's that's the solution to the kind of memeable, crazy things that are happening in a very small number of schools. And then anti-CRT bills are just, it's just culture of war fodder. It is, yeah. 
and they help no one right it's it, it's this fight between left and right that i see happening which is like fighting crazy with even crazier <laughs> No, there's a lot of crazy going on. Terrible for the discourse. It's like, you know what? I don't want to talk about whether or not, like, I I want to talk about whether or not, like, elementary schoolers are learning to read, not, like, whether or not they're learning, like, quote-unquote divisive concepts, and if it matters, if they actually are, and, you know, it's, I, I find it to be a really tired debate that just distracts from real actual issues facing our school system. No, a lot of it is to get parents mad before the midterms, I feel like. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of that. But, I mean, just overall, like, so that was a bit, like, that was a more policy-based discussion right there, but, you know, the, the kind of points that you were trying to hit at in your article were changing the dynamics inside a classroom, like, changing what, you know, the girl two seats away is thinking about what you're saying, right? Um, like, I, I've been in these, like, scenarios where, like, you know, I've been in, like, a class talking about things and like maybe I try to tone something down or say some, a few words because I know people will disagree right but um there's no is there a way to fix that because people will always have beliefs that they hold so close to them right so I just like it feels like a plea in an empty hole sometimes just being like oh these people didn't like what I said you know yeah I mean I don't really think there's a way to fix it because you're right like I, I think when it comes to Really, I think the, the problem, I think people often deliberately misunderstood what I was saying when I said censorship. I don't mean like not saying what's in your head 100% of the time. Obviously, yeah. like unless you're just trying to come up with the least charitable view of what I'm saying. Like, obviously, it's not the argument I'm furthering. It's more the idea that like beliefs that should be acceptable within classroom discussion within like, you know, a reasonable Overton window, which I think involves pretty much most opinions that a decent proportion of the American population believes to be true um, should not face this kind of like outsized, very emotionally charged backlash in class discussions, right? Like you shouldn't get called a white supremacist for saying that you don't believe in race-based affirmative action in college admissions, right? Which is a view that the majority of Americans believe, including the majority of Black and Hispanic Americans, right? Something like that. Um, but at the same time, right, because there is so much social capital to be gained by publicly junking on someone, you know, we have a, a large portion of people have to believe that this is not a problem, right? And that we shouldn't uh, appreciate ideological diversity because ideological diversity in, includes beliefs that I think are bad. So I don't really think there's a solution to it other than people just holding different views about free expression which can't make people do, right? Like, if it's yeah. a matter of, like, the solution to this is people just having different thoughts about this thing. So, well, you can hope that people change their minds. You know, maybe when it eventually comes for them, they will realize that this is bad. But unfortunately, I, I, I don't think in the immediate there's really a, a solution um, to be had because this is such a social phenomenon. It is, yeah, and but you know I've read your article probably ten, twenty times now in preparation for this. But one of the the uh, the paragraph that kind of puzzled me a bit was when you talked about um, your friend who said in a classroom discussion that Captain Marvel was uh, not a feminist movie, which you know putting all those points aside, like the thing that correct me if I'm wrong on the details, but she said that, and then a lot of people got uncomfortable. A lot of people started, you know, piling on. Someone said they disagree. Another person said they disagree. Like a hundred people just said they disagreed. Isn't that what we want? Shouldn't we want, you know, that kind of thing where we have like someone voice their opinion and then, you know, 90 people could disagree if they're all saying their own 
true-held opinions. Like, I didn't really see how that kind of scenario fit inside the broader point you were trying to make there. Well, I, I think to that scenario, like, the, the problem I have is not disagreement at all. I think disagreement is great. I think what the person I interviewed was trying to get at there is it wasn't mere disagreement. It was this somewhat personal kind of emotionally charged attack, right? It was, I, I know the word offended is often overly used. It, was, it wasn't just that someone, people disagreed. It's that there was this sense that they were personally offended by what you said. And, and part of it also, I wish this, I had this in a draft. I don't know why it was removed. Perhaps the professor in question disagreed when it was fact-checked. But the person I interviewed did say that after this incident, the professor stopped calling on her in class. Oh, okay. Yeah. The professor wouldn't call on her anymore. Um, again, I don't, I don't know why the Times took it out. But um, so according to this one person, this is what she said happened after. Uh, and so part of it was also that the professor goaded on the pylon of this individual class, right. right it wasn't a productive discussion it was she disagreed with the professor and the professor encouraged the fellow students to have this kind of emotionally charged pylon of this other person in class that didn't really get at like okay well what is a feminist movie right like what do we want our female characters to do which would have been the productive version of a class where yeah. even like lots of people agree disagree with the person who said thing a but they're able to do that, and the professor encourages the encourages them to do that in a way that doesn't involve like character assassination. Okay, yeah, that's that's definitely fair. That's like a better characterization. So that makes a lot of sense there. Um, yeah. So just like, but overall, inside a classroom and inside, you know, the kind of discussion that we're trying to propagate, is there like? Sorry, I'm just uh, trying to think of my notes here. Um, do you often think that there are people who a lot of right-wing culture warriors you know i know turning point usa has a teacher watch list of you know teachers who are not you know not sympathetic to conservatives or not willing to engage in discussions do you think there's a lot of similar to people yelling parents at school board meetings who are mad about crt do you think there are a lot of people who are looking you know in colleges like oh is that an example of cancel culture is this an example of like someone being censored there are some like a lot of fake warriors who overtake the movement at times right yeah, I mean, of course. Like, I, I think the article is, is deliberately nonpartisan. I think this can be a problem on, on both sides. I, I think it goes without saying that, like, based off of the numbers we have, like, college professors are overwhelmingly left-wing. But at the same time, like, the right will use this strategy just as much as the left. Like, I don't buy claims from a lot of those on the right wing that they are the party that loves liberty right and that they love free speech and i'm like you guys love anti-crt bills right if you if you held the keys to the knowledge making institutions in our society if, if it was your ideological group that was represented you know 12 to 1 in academia i guarantee you you would be encouraging this exact same kind of thing and not perceiving the problem with it and instead of putting to mandate college students go to anti-racism trainings that make them rank themselves on their privilegedness, you would want them to go to liberty trainings, right? Where they have to profess how awesome Thomas Jefferson was, right? Like that this is not the not appreciating freedom of speech and free expression cuts across 
both party lines, right? It's wherever authoritarian streaks are to be found. Right now, you can find them in abundance in both the right and left. Yeah, although there are people who are not, you know, outright partisans, not not like outright, you know, warriors for their cause, who just think like, I remember in your article, you were talking about, you know, how you wanted to talk about with a, with a friend, like something that was good for Thomas Jefferson or something that, you know, cast him in a positive light. And that's great. But, you know, a lot of the sense there was that, oh, we got to talk about this quietly. So so-and-so doesn't hear and so-and-so is very critical of Thomas Jefferson. Like, at that point, is it actual worry that something bad will happen? Or is it just, you know, this false sense of like, oh, I'm just gonna, I just need to avoid these people. I just need to, I'm not expressing this very well. But um, it definitely felt like there were a lot of vibes. Like, oh, I didn't feel that this classroom wasn't, was sympathetic to me. Or I don't, I didn't feel that this roommate, if he had heard me say this about Thomas Jefferson, would have been sympathetic. Is a lot of it like, predicting what's prescient and not actually like responding to like a whole onslaught well i mean there's also a lot of data in the article right okay. like yeah that's fair i was asked to give personal experience and i did but i would also note it seems like a, a lot of my critics seem to have closed their closed their eyes when i actually presented pretty good data um i i don't have the numbers off the top of my head but the college poll survey had thirty-seven thousand respondents right and most college students report self-censoring and at least some contexts. Many students, I think particularly conservative students, report fear even that they will get lower grades if they don't agree with professors. This is a feeling that a lot of students have. And I think for the right reasons, right? They see their peers who have the wrong views get publicly cascaded on social media. Right. At UVA, there was a student who was elected by the student body to the student council. And then it came out that he had the wrong political views. I think he had a selfie with Marjorie Taylor Greene. And the student council tried to remove him from office. They almost successfully impeached him for the crime of being a very conservative person, I suppose. Right? People see stuff like that happen. They hear their peers talking about how, you know, people who are in the College of Republicans or in Young Americans for Freedom are the scum of the earth, right? Like, I have a friend in our club who is conservative and Catholic and people jokingly call him a Nazi, right? When, when he's not, right, at, at all. Um, and so I think that anyone who's been in an environment like this, you, you understand why people are afraid, right? Because of the intense reputational cost it can incur, right? I know people who have lost friends for minor infractions, right? People are people tend to believe that the wrong political beliefs are polluting almost. So I do think there's reason. You know, people say, "Oh, just be braver," and it's like, well, you put yourself in this situation. And granted, like I, I think a lot of people came back reading the article thinking that I self censor all the time. I don't. I probably self censor the least out of anyone I know. Right. I, and in fact, the one instance where people are like, "Oh, she feels censored because of this thing," it's like that was actually a time that I didn't self censor. Yeah. Never did I give a time that I did um all of the the reactions were from other people I would have been perfectly happy uh to talk about an event that was held on grounds in support of Thomas Jefferson you know it was my friend who demanded that we close the door so his roommate doesn't hear us um and I think my classmates have you know they're exercising self-preservation right maybe they shouldn't but I can't really blame them, right? 
Yeah, no, that's that's very true. And like a lot of this came into my mind as I'm like preparing for this interview with you, because like, you know, a lot of people who I have interviewed are just professors who want to talk about policy. But like with you, I was thinking like, you know, oh, like this is this is, this is a really good opportunity to like actually engage in some disagreement, some quibbles we have. And I think that's that's a really good thing. So I'm glad we're engaging in like that kind of thing. But there are a lot of people who, as you're mentioning, are just so repellent to that idea. But do you buy the idea that among those people, it's eclipsed the realm of good intentions. I know a lot of people, uh, one of my favorite comedians, Bo Burnham, talks about how on college campuses, you know, these kids have overcorrected. They swung the pendulum too far in political correctness and cancel culture and free speech. But it's going in a good direction. The world's gotten less bigoted, less racist, you know, more tolerant. Um, and even if that comes at the cost of, you know, people being canceled, being censored, it could even back in the middle and we've been headed in a good direction over the last 50 years. Do you buy that people have still have good intentions on that? I mean, I don't think that making the world less bigoted and less racist involves the kind of cultural norms that we have now. Yeah. Right. I think how people, and also like, if people are simply, if people hold these horrible bigoted racist thoughts in their head and they're just too afraid to say them, like, I don't think that's actually a huge improvement, right? You haven't actually made the world less bigoted or less racist. You've just made people realize they have a bit of an interest saying so, right? And if people hold slightly dissonant beliefs that aren't really actually bigoted or racist, but we'll get them called that in some circles because of the massive overcorrection, again, see opposition to affirmative action or maybe not wanting to abolish the police, for example, um, things that the vast majority of Americans of all ethnicities, um, like something like that, like that hasn't really improved the world. Um, I think how you make the world less bigoted and less racist is just by changing people's minds. And I'm not sure if these cultural norms succeed in doing that at all. If anything, they inspire a really intense backlash. Right? Someone like Ben Shapiro wouldn't have a platform if there were crazy college students on down, right? Right. So I, I just don't, I don't really buy that claim, right? I think that's a claim made by someone who is quite distant from the culture war. That's fair. Yeah, and as, as you're saying, you know, yeah, there are a lot of... Oh, sorry, yeah. Sorry, I'm grabbing my computer. <laughs> no, no worries at all. Yeah, I've, I've been in your position many times. Um, but yeah, no, there are a lot of people, as you're saying, who like um, really provocateurs, people like Milo Yiannopoulos, awful, awful people who... Um, have gone to colleges and have seeked out, you know, college students ready to cancel him, ready to, you know, cause a scene because it, it propagates his brand that, you know, he's this renegade who people are scared of, right? So it often works in the opposite direction, right? So, but w when is the time to protest a speaker? If someone's saying, if, you know, someone's coming to your college and someone's saying something that you genuinely don't like and you want to express you want to express your dissent to that. It feels like on one end, if you say nothing, you're doing nothing and people should always be encouraged to say things. But on the other end, if you hold up signs, if you, you know, shout as people are entering the thing, that often feels like, you know, that, that gets a response from conservatives like, this is awful, this is cancel culture, this is censorship. So 
it feels like no matter which approach you take, you always lose when you have a speaker who you don't like and you want to say something about that, right? No, I mean, I think people should definitely protest speakers. Okay. If, right? I don't think they should call for their universities to cancel the speakers. Okay. yeah. Um, but I think it's totally appropriate to stand outside an event and peacefully protest, right? Um, I think I, I will, you know, I can hold the opinion that, you know, oh, well, I don't really think this person is as bad as you say they are. Um, but, you know, sometimes they are. I was very happy to see when, when Mike Pence came to UVA uh, recently. I was very happy to see that there were a small number of people peacefully protesting outside the event, right? I disagree with Pence's views on LGBT people. I, I went to the event because I felt like I, I needed to, but um, so it done a Twitter thread that kind of blew up about it. I was like, okay, I have to see this thing that I'm defending yeah. its right to happen. But I was, I had said, I will be very disappointed if UVA students aren't peacefully protesting outside. And they were, and I was happy to see that. And so I think people totally should, right? Where it becomes inappropriate is when there is this desire to prevent other people from seeing the speaker. Um, to interrupt the speaker and keep them from speaking from, you know, these calls to have the universities intervene. That's where I think the problem is. Um, And I also, you know, think that there are some instances in which, you know, people are reacting far too strongly to something, right? Like even if, say, so at Yale recently, when um, a bunch of Yale law students interrupted um, a bipartisan event on free speech, right? I think that was obviously highly inappropriate. I would have very much supported the Yale students' rights to protest outside the event. But I would have also said, I think the fact that this is considered worthy of protest by future lawyers is shameful. But also, this is how they should express their opposition to this event, right? Right. So I think there's kind of layers of, and again, I think this sort of goes in the often conflation between like a legal, legal and kind of rights-based discussions of free speech and the kind of cultural discussion. Yeah, no, I completely, agree. that's actually really good. I completely agree with that. Like I found that at my own high school in 2020, we had, um, like our high school, I'm in New York, upstate New York, and our most, fav- our most famous graduate of our high school is um, Megan Kelly. And obviously that's someone who's uh, been chagrined a lot by a lot of uh, progressives. And I'm a progressive, um, but like, no, there was a huge push that summer to kick Megyn Kelly out of our high school's Hall of Fame and to like remove her little plaque, you know, when we all entered the school. So I just feel like that's the wrong approach. But protesting where she's speaking, you know, disagreeing with her, that's the right approach. But we conflate those things so much. Um, but no, it's, it's just fascinating to me. I mean, I just feel like, I don't know, like, I'm sorry, I'm tripping over things right here. But there is a difference, though, with how, you know, people seize on that issue. People are ready to criticize college kids who overstep things and take things too far. And people who are interested in, you know, people who are interested in attacking progressives and attacking liberals versus people who want to sign the Harper's Letter, right? Which I was a big fan of. So is there a huge difference in your mind between Harper's Letter and the intellectual dark web, say? That kind of thing. Yeah, I think definitely, right? <laughs> yeah. I think especially shown by the things the intellectual dark web has done. Yeah. Uh, yes, right? I think um, we should seek to adhere by by principles, right? I, I think of the Harper's Letter as something that's very much like a small L liberal endeavor, right? About, you know, we are concerned about what happens when we lose a cultural value for a thing, because that means we might lose the 
kind of rights-based value of that thing. Like, this is why we're concerned about this versus like sort of getting that, but then also very quickly letting it fall by the wayside um, to just dunk on college kids, right? So I, I, I definitely agree with that. And I think that that's very much shown by, I think, Brett Weinstein. I think James Lindsay is an obvious example oh of someone who's on the intellectual dark web who is now... Uh, the only way I can describe it is clearly severely mentally ill. Um, yeah. But essentially, like, essentially becoming more and more of along the ilk of, I, I don't know, James Lindsay might even be better than Shapiro, but the kind of, like, shock jock Cancel, you know, uh, culture warriors that I find extremely grating and extremely bad for the discourse, right? Okay, actually, that's a great way of describing it. Like, Dark Wars Letter folks want to make the discourse better. Yeah. <laughs> Dark Web wants to make it worse, wait, but wait. better for them. <laughs> right, right. They want to use it in a way, I feel like, to endorse existing disparities. You know, whatever Jordan Peterson says, he's using, like, his free speech persona to be like, I want to talk in a free way so I can, you know, prove why women are worse at science or prove why institutional racism doesn't exist, right? Like, there's a huge co-opting of that, isn't there? I mean, I, I'm i not as familiar with Jordan Peterson, but, um, you know, I think people should be able to use their free speech to say horrible things. Right. Um, oh, completely, But yeah. I don't think it is necessarily, like, a sign that I don't think it's a sign that we've lost our cultural value for free expression when people criticize horribly objectionable things. I think my concern is where the bar for horribly objectionable is placed, if that makes sense. Right. If someone walks around saying that like white people are innately smarter than black people, calling them a racist is apt, right? That's what racism is. They could do that is correct. It's more when someone says, like, you know, actually having the SAT is good in college admissions. Um, and, and you know, maybe, like, Ivy Leagues shouldn't be allowed to openly racially discriminate against Asians. That person being called a horrible racist is, is probably not appropriate. Yeah, I feel like there is, like, degrees of separation. Like, people people who, you know, pounce on someone for saying the SAT is good, actually, are, you know, removing all the degrees of separation between, like, that perspective and then a deeper perspective and then, like, an actually racist perspective. Like, there's, like, three things between that, you know, and you can't put them in the same category. But no, I, I definitely agree with you. You know, there are people in the discourse who make it better, who make the free speech better. Did you read um, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's essay last summer? Yes, I did. Yeah. It is obscene. Yeah, that was the most wonderful. So thing. good. Yeah. It was so good. I really, I, I read Purple Hibiscus in a high school class, and I, and the teacher had us like watch the like we should all be feminists. Oh, I things. love that one. Yeah, bit of a fan. And then I read that essay, and I was like, yes, <laughs> so good. Oh, you're such a talented writer. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. And I thought that was a great essay that really captures like I guess the personality type of the kind of person right. who engages in this. Yeah, I just feel like a lot of people who we expect, because, you know, if you had honestly asked me, do I expect, which, like, where do I expect Chimamanda and Gozi Adichie to be on this issue before she put out that essay, I would have completely guessed wrong. Because we ha- we have it so conflated that progressives will, you know, 
before cancel culture and they'll be for censorship and conservatives won't. So I think that's a good well, it's way to because she was canceled that. because she Oh did, yeah. Because she wouldn't say trans women are women. She said trans women are trans, oh, trans women. women. Yeah. Yeah. And then Right. She she was canceled herself. That's very true. Yeah. But I, I just, like a part of it is about how her former students basically abandoned her and, and jumped on the like, yeah, she's evil bandwagon after right. she left them in their careers and that's a way to get a voice for yourself if you can be like i'm a student under this professor and i like this professor and now they're terrible like that's a way to you know boost your boost yourself up and put yourself in the oh news, yeah right? totally yeah. right it's it's what you see when people get canceled or, or accused of some wrongdoing and you see people clamoring to come up with stories of their own victimization right right even if if the story is like i met him at a party once and he was okay <laughs> I know, yeah. It's like, how can I make this about right. me? Yeah. Um, like, that actually sort of sort of happened to me. Like, when the article came out, like, I had made the mistake of... I think you're frozen, Emma. I think you're frozen. Okay. Was I frozen? Are we good? You were frozen. You were frozen. I think. Yeah. Okay. So I, I mean, this is something that sort of happened to me too. When the article came out, um, people I hadn't spoken to in years that I went to high school with or went to like a writing camp in high school with. Really? They tried to come up with it. They were like, you've been making microaggressions against me. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Oh my gosh. What? I haven't spoken to you since eighth grade. Like what could... <laughs> What no. could a fourteen-year-old me have done? Yeah, like and that's <laughs> of course, no specifics, cool. right? But I, I think, and then of course, a bunch of people would be praising them in the comments for having said that. You know, a fifteen-year-old me apparently made some horrible transgression. Um, but of course, that that happens because of the social capital to be gained by going. Ah, I knew Emma Camp was bad before we all knew she was. Yeah. Bad. No, in 10 years, I'll be like, I interviewed Emma Camp, and this is what she said. No, I'm joking. I would never do that. Horrible things. I would never yes. do that. But um, no, I mean, it, a lot of it is, is interesting. Like the affirmative, act, like my only personal experience on this issue was like last last fall uh, for my English class, we had to write an essay. And I was just like, I'm like a very much night before kind of guy. So I was just like, oh, like I'll should write an essay about how affirmative action should be more toward uh, race and class and not gender. And um I wrote it and my parents were like, hey, you need to tone this down, make it like, like, there's definitely some worry about like the PC-ness, like you need to make it more like pro-feminism. So I did that. And then my English teacher was like, oh, I liked your first draft better. You know, and my English teacher is like the most progressive person you'll it ever was find. It, wait, an article saying that we should just ease up on the gender mm. stuff on affirmative action wasn't... Well, it was just a fear. PC and... Well, no, it, it was the worry that like... It was the worry that, you know, an article saying that we should not do gender-based affirmative action and we should only do race and class. Oh, that like your teacher would give you a lower grade. Yeah, but it's, I was worried about that. But it's like indicative of like the walking on eggshells type of thing. Because like I tried to make it the most progressive thing with that point. But then my English teacher was like, oh, I liked your first draft better. And I gave you a lower grade on the second draft because you made like bad changes to it. So, right, because you prevented yeah. yourself from being able to make your argument by spending half the time probably saying, but I don't mean that. You know, women actually do have a really bad, even though they get 60% of the bachelor's degrees now. Right, like, that was that was like a huge part have, of it. Like, just, just do better in life. <laughs> yeah, that was, 
So that was a bit of an ugly moment. But, um, you know, it's indicative of, like, I hear so many news stories about, you know, people being cancelled, and I, I'm very much following the same discourse that you are, and it's like, you just don't want to join that. So it's it's tough. How do you get people to be braver, then? I don't know. Um, I, I hope... I, I think part of it is by finding communities that support ideological diversity more like basically all of my friends i'm actually wearing the sweatshirt for it now the jefferson society which is sort of a debate society at uva it's very much founded on the principle of ideological diversity um and so i never feel afraid to say an opinion that i have there in conversations with people in the society at meetings i don't like i don't and, and afraid i is sort of a it's a term that's easily using the word afraid is easily used against you. Like I, I don't worry about outside social backlash for basically anything I say. I know people will disagree with me, yeah. Um, but it's never personal, right? I can have this long drawn out debate or argument with someone over something and we're still really good friends afterwards and it's fine, that's right? Good. There's no, like you can have these really rich discussions, even on like pretty intense things right like things that people do have emotional attachments to and there's no worry that like it will be perceived as a personal offense right to talk about them um and so i think part of people being braver is people being used to environments in which ideological diversity is welcomed right and then it's easier to take it elsewhere like i don't really self-censor but that's because in my social environment um, I have no reason to. Um, so I, I and and I, I think that's a, a large part of what's happening, uh, or part of what I think would help. But I don't know. I think as long as the social capital system, as long as the incentive structure exists to for those who are in the ideological majority to harshly punish those who aren't. I don't know. It's it's a problem that I, I'm not sure has a clear solution, or at least not one that I can come up with. It is. It is really tough. And I don't see it too much in high school because everyone in high school, I'm in liberal New York, so there's no ideological diversity to begin with. So um, I'm really excited to get to I do to think that's actually, it's interesting you bring that up. I do think that's part of the problem as well for specifically elite college campuses. Most people who are attending elite colleges are from the highest echelons of income. Right means they're most like they're more likely to be liberal like it's most of the kids at Yale come from liberal wealthy families yeah. right with UVA it's a little more diverse because we're a public school but like I think part of it is that a lot of kids come to college having never really met someone who disagreed with them and they just don't know how to handle it I grew up in rural Alabama my parents are Democrats I met a lot I basically met no one who agreed with yeah. me Politically, and I think that was very formative and very good because I had a problem with someone's political beliefs being different from my own in a way that I think a lot of my peers kind of lose their minds and shut down when they meet someone who disagrees with them because they never learned how to handle disagreement, right? Republicans are the person like on the TV that their dad complains about, right? They're not like real people. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. And like, for me, it's just like, you know, the people who are the bad actors that we're talking about in the campus students, like, I don't disagree with them because I agree with them on policy. So it's like, it's very interesting to make that distinction. But um, I think Jonathan Haidt's The Coddling of the American Mind does a very good job of that. 
Um, That's a very good book. Yeah. Do you have any other book recommendations on this kind of issue? <laughs> I mean, Unlearning Liberty is by Greg Lukianoff, and that's oh, I love Greg Lukianoff. Might have been written before Kalimari. It's on my bookshelf. Yeah. Uh, is it written? It might have been written before Kalimari. Uh, you interned for Fire. Very right? similar book. Hmm? You interned for Fire, right? I did. So I got this book for free. Nice. Yeah. Um, and actually, if you email Fire, yes, I think this is written for Kalimari. If you email Fire, they will give you any of the fine books in their catalog, including Codling or Farizzle. Um, I did not know that. <laughs> which is a little secret that I learned as an intern. Uh, that's, that's good on that topic. I, I, I'm about like halfway through Jonathan Rasher's Constitution of Knowledge, I so I great. can't give a final say on it, but I, I enjoy it. So I've enjoyed it so far. Um, and I think it does a good job of talking about it. Yeah. That's really great. Um, I also really like The Chair on Netflix. Um, have you seen that one with uh, Sandra Oh and the professor gets canceled? I, I haven't seen it, but that one is, of my students was talking to me. That is very good. That is very good. But um, yeah, I think that's about it. I think my last question was, is like, you know, I'm a high schooler. A lot of our listeners are high schoolers or parents of high schoolers, which is our small little network. Um, so what advice would you have for high schoolers who, you know, we're right now in a crazy time. It's our break. We're all visiting colleges and studying for APs and the SATs. Um, like, what advice would you have for high schoolers as we all go into college and as we all try to, like, make the best out of that experience and try to engage in the kind of discourse that you want to see in future universities? Pick a college that values your rights. Don't go to a school that is not a green line on fire, basically. Nice. <laughs> if you can help it, right? Um, I think the schools where this problem is the worst are very often the schools where the administration makes the problem its worst, right? If you go to a school where there is a portal that you can report one of your fellow students for microaggressing you on, and then they might get investigated and punished, right? You know, if, if you go to a school where administrators cancel any mildly controversial speaker, where they have a, a hotline for a crisis counselor placed you know, outside of Republican events, right? If, if, if your administration thinks that the wrong speech is a physical danger to their students, right? The kind of problems described in books like Conling in the American Mind run, right? Because that's where it's going to be hardest to find good discourse, right? You want to go to schools where the administration, a lot of times, say, has adopted something like the Chicago Statement, right? And says, like, look, we are fundamentally truth-seeking institutions, right? You can't seek the truth if you can't explore any way of getting to it, right? You can't seek the truth if we say, no, 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 here is the, pre, here's the, the prescribed truth, and you just have to agree with that. So I think it, it's finding administrations that will be supportive to your cause, um, where you think you can find not necessarily a student body that agrees with you, but that is likely to have an appreciation for speech. Right. Yeah, that was going to be my last. Including ideological diversity. <laughs> that was going to be my last question, but I have to ask after this: What do you think about the University of Austin, which has said all those things, came out like that? Um, I don't know. I was skeptical. Like it just seemed very. No, I'm I'm interested to see where it goes. I'm not outraged by the fact that it exists, right? I don't think it's a danger to presently yeah. exist colleges, right? I think 
I'm interested to see if it succeeds or fails. I think if it does succeed, that'll certainly say interesting things about like what people want out of their college experience. I think the most interesting thing about them is not necessarily like the kind of, I guess, culture war aspects of it. It's the fact that they say we will reduce costs by getting rid of bells and whistles. That I'm really interested in. Because I think one of the drivers of high tuition um, is really like meaningless perks that a lot of colleges attach, right? UVA has the largest hot tub on the East Coast. Why do we need that, right? Why can I get free laser tag from the University of Virginia, right? I want to come here to go to school, not to go to a water park. Um, But a lot of colleges, and I think part of this is that college is necessary for a middle-class life and middle-class parents demand that their kids, no matter how stupid, go to college, right? A kid that would be better off being a plumber will get shipped off to college whether they like it or not, and it'll probably take them six or seven years to get finished with it. Um, not to say plumbers are stupid. I use two, two strong terms there, but uh, no matter how academically non-promising um, they may be, because um, it's just what middle-class parents expect, right? Because the, the increasing number of helicopter parents means that like little Jemmy has to go to Yale no matter what, right? Oh Even gosh. if better off saving the 200K. Um, and so you have these bells and whistles to attract the kinds of people who just spend four years drinking, right, and partying, and rather mm-hmm. than really learning. And so I think the fact that the University of Austin is saying, like, okay, we're going to get rid of the bells and whistles, right? You come here and you learn, and your inflation isn't, your your tuition isn't inflated by like having reflection rooms, just the University yeah. of Virginia has. I'm addressing like crying cubbies, right? So you don't have crying cubbies. Oh no! What am I going to do without my crying cubbies? I mean, just like I know. But, yeah. So I think that's going to be really promising if a lot of people are interested in that. Um, yeah, I mean, like I just I know that like not me and you are not that representative of like other like kids. Like not every kid I see in my grade, like in high school, just wakes up like ready to learn today. Like it's a lot of like let's get through it. Let's get to prom. No, very many you know, people would be. Yeah. Well, served by entering the middle class with a trade school degree which you can very much and not like not reading the books right like right. instead of just like doing the reading for six years but just you know like not everyone needs to go to college but there's so much social uh pressure to do right. so because it will reflect bad on your parents if you don't go to college not only that like to get into the good colleges there's so much right, it's exactly. so toxic and like my gosh yeah I can't take it I hate it already and we haven't even started but um yeah so thank you so much for this interview this really meant a lot to me and I'm glad we could have some thank you for having me productive discourse which we're all fans of here (laughs) um so yeah this went great hope to keep in touch hopefully your senior year goes uh ends well at UVA right um so yeah yeah thank you so much all right well it was nice speaking with you and good luck on those college visits oh my gosh yeah (laughs) have a good one bye all right thank you